0: In today's talk, we'd like to discuss the topic, why Tama why dhamma? For those of you who have come here from very far away, in order to study and practice the dhamma, we need to consider this point. Why dhamma? If we can understand this properly, then our study and practice will be go along smoothly and efficiently. And so we will speak on this subject today. All of you have heard about something called Buddhism, or maybe the Buddha-sasana, the teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha's instruction, and things like this. Often these words become opportunities for us to engage in arguments and conflict through our varying opinions about what these things may be. However, Buddhism, Buddha-sasana, etc., can also be names for this thing we call Dhamma various aspects of Dhamma but in a deeper sense this thing Dhamma can be called natural truth natural truth which is the national natural truth regarding the the emancipation of life, or the emancipation of the mind. This is what we mean by dhamma. Even though this, we may call this Buddhism, or see it as something involving Buddhists. Buddhist monks, nuns, laymen, and laywomen. We shouldn't understand, we should not understand that the Dhamma belongs to the Buddha or to Buddhists. The Dhamma is natural truth. It belongs to nature and not to anyone or any group. The Buddha does not own the Dhamma. The Buddha doesn't own truth. The Dhamma is something which the Buddha discovered and then taught. He discovered this and then did his best to explain it to other human beings. He doesn't own it. He didn't make it up. It's not just some Buddhist idea, Buddhist opinion, or Buddhist theory. It's a natural truth discovered and then passed on. And so it belongs to nature. It is not the property of the Buddha or of Buddhists. This natural truth is the natural truth concerned with the duty. The duty of man in order to be emancipated. The Dhamma is the natural truth about man's duty in order to realize the liberation and emancipation of life. This is a very natural thing. Please understand this definition and remember it. If you understand this explanation of what Dhamma is, it won't limit you and it won't lead to conflicts and arguments with other groups and traditions. What kind of duty is this we're talking about? We're talking about a duty in order to survive, the duty of survival, but this survival we're talking about is a survival that is cool. The word cool is a translation of the word Nibbāna, which is the highest, most perfect thing in Buddhism. And so, this is a duty that aims at a cool survival. Not a survival that is still troubled with heat and problems, but survival that is cool. This is the duty that we're talking about. Without Nibbāna, there is no Buddhism. Nibbāna means coolness, and coolness is the absence of heat, the absence of anything hot, such as the mental defilements, greed, hatred, delusion, and so forth, or, more simply, the heat of suffering, of dukkha. Coolness is the absence of all these hot things. When these hot, disturbing things are present, then there is no nibbana. But when they are absent, when the mind is free of them, then there is the state of nibbana. Nibbāna is a Pālī word. Pālī is the language which the Buddha, the Buddha's words are recorded in. And the word Pālī simply means coolness. This Nibbāna is the state which is the goal and aim of Buddha's practice. This is the sumam bonum, the utmost goodness or highest good as conceived by Buddhism. When the mind is under the influence of various things which afflict it, then there is no coolness. For example, when the mind is under the influence of pleasure or things which please it, or on the other hand, when the mind is influenced and under the power of displeasure, or things which displease the mind, then the mind is not free. It is hot and disturbed by the influence of these pleasing and displeasing things. Buddhism aims at being above all this, of raising the mind, or freeing the mind, so that it is above the influence of these pleasant and or unpleasant things. This is an example of coolness, of the mind being developed, so that is it is out from under the power in affliction of pleasure and displeasure. The aim of Buddhism is to be free of and out from, the, out from under the influence of both positivism, positivism and negativism, these various dualities which afflict and disturb the mind. We can summarize all this by saying that this duty is the duty of survival—survival such that the mind is free. If, If we do not fulfill this duty, if we do not practice as we must according to this duty, then the result will be death. So Buddhism is talking about, or the Dhamma, is about this natural truth of the duty which leads to survival to being free and out from the under the influence of the various dualistic things which infl- afflict and bother the mind when the mind is out from under these influences when it is above them then we say that the mind is free it is free of these pairs of opposites, and this is the kind of survival that is truly cool. When life is free of all these dualistic things, pleasing and displeasing, positive and negative things, then there is something we might call new life, and this is what Buddhism is talking about. Now, this duty of realizing this new life, we can, we should look at where it comes from, how it arises. If we are followers or believers in a religion that posits a god or a creator, then the duty of human beings is some kind of command that comes from this God. However, if our religion is one in which there is no God, or a creator God, but rather a religion that is based in evolution. Uh, an uh, evolutionist religion rather than a creationist religion. Then we see that duty, the duty of human beings, comes from the law of nature rather than from a god. The law of nature is inherent in all nature. Science, over the years, has uncovered a variety of natural laws. The Buddha, 2,500 years ago, did not make up theories, hypotheses, or laws. What he did was merely look as deeply into life and nature as is possible and in that way discover the law of nature and in turn teach it to other beings. So in Buddhism we're talking about a duty which arises from, which follows from the law of nature, which is something that all human beings can come to know in real life. We'd like to discuss some of the meanings of the word dhamma. Most of all meanings which are very useful and beneficial of this word dhamma. Dhamma is from the Pali language. You may have heard the Sanskrit equivalent more often, which is dharma. But here we use the word in Thai Tama. Or in a Western pronunciation, Dhamma. There are four very important meanings of the word Dhamma. The first is nature, this nature itself. This is in the Pali language translated Dhamma. Second, Within nature, there is the law of nature. Inherent within nature is the law of nature. And this, in the Pali language, is known as dhamma, or in Sanskrit, dharma. Then there is the duty according to the law of nature. When there is this law of nature, it stipulates a duty in accordance with the law of nature. And in the Pali language, this is also known as Dhamma. And fourth, there is the result or fruit of performing that duty in accordance with the law of nature. And this, as well, is Dhamma in the Pali language. The word Dhamma has these four meanings. It has other meanings as well, but these are four very important meanings. Nature itself, the law of nature, the duty in accordance with the law of nature. And this third meaning is the most important and most valuable one. In coming here to Mok, the real purpose of being here is to study and realize this lo- duty in accordance with the law of nature. And then the fourth meaning of Dhamma is the fruit that comes with fulfilling the duty according to the law of nature. These are four very important meanings of the word dhamma. And you can see that it would be impossible to translate the word dhamma into any one word in another language. So This is why we do not translate the word dhamma. It is too important and rich a word to translate. And so we hope that you will come to understand this Pali word, dhamma, or the Sanskrit equivalent dharma. This is a very important thing that each of us needs to know. You can see quite clearly that all four meanings of the word dhamma are related and associated with nature. There is nature itself, the law of nature, duty in accordance with the law of nature, and the fruit of fulfilling the duty according to the law of nature. This is all very natural. It is all part of nature, a most natural and ordinary thing. You'll also notice that none of these meanings of the word Dhamma have anything to do with a god whether the Creator God, the Preserver God, or the Destroyer God. In these meanings of the word Dhamma, there is no notion of an individual or personal God, a God that has some sort of personality. However, in the interests of understanding among different religions. If we'd like to talk about a god in the Buddhist sense, then we can use the second meaning of the word dhamma, the law of nature. If we need to, we can say that this is the Buddhist god. The law of nature is the god of Buddhism. But notice that this god of Buddhism is impersonal. It is not some individual being or self or ego as a god in in many systems is described. It is merely an impersonal, natural law. And so in Buddhism, if we'd like to speak in a way That is easier for people from other religions to understand, then we can talk about the God of Buddhism. But realize that this Buddhist God has, is not, we're not speaking of this Buddhist God in the way that God is commonly spoken of as being a personality or ego. Now, this Buddhist God, or the law of nature, is something very scientific, in essence. It's a very scientific approach to life. This is the kind of God which a modern scientist can be interested in. This law of nature is something that is completely fitting and understandable within the understanding of modern science. Now if we approach nature scientifically we see that this law of nature has nothing to do with any kind of self or soul. This Buddhist God does not create any self, soul, or an inherent self existing ego. There is merely the process of reaction, of action and reaction. This is what life is. And the law of nature explains this. In Buddhism, we have the word i-thapa-jayada, which we can call the law of cause and effect. It means with this as condition, this arises. Itapajayata. This is the Buddhist God, an impersonal law of nature, which explains this process of action and reaction. If we take this approach to nature, we will have no problems in dealing with modern scientific points of view and understanding. Furthermore, this law of nature, the law of cause and effect, explains how within this process of action and reaction, there arises the thing we call tukha, suffering, mental anguish, pain, ill, uneasiness, unsatisfactoriness. da this Buddhist god, shows how this, this problem of tukha, of pain and suffering is caused. To explain this, we need to mention the instincts. The instincts are a basic natural level of knowledge which all living creatures have. Now, in human beings these instincts are present as well, and in themselves they are no problem. But often or but because of a lack of understanding of the way things really are these instincts get out of control and when the instincts get out of control they become what we call defilements the instincts which originally merely serve to main to allow the human being to survive. These survival instincts get out of control and become selfish. When the instincts are selfish then, we no longer are operating in order to survive, but we are inflicting harm, pain, and suffering on others. We take advantage of others, we exploit them we cause tuka for others. And this is how the defilements arise out of selfishness, which arises when the instincts get out of control. The law of nature of cause and effect explains this, that tuka suffering, arises out of these causes, as we have, as we have just explained. That was one way in which the law of nature explains the arising of suffering. A second way of how the law of nature explains this problem of suffering is that tukha, mental anguish, arises because we are unable to control contact. This thing contact or in Pali Patsa, Patsa or contact, is a very, very important thing that we need to get to know and understand. You may not have ever given it much thought, so let me take a bit of time to explain what we mean by contact. Contact is the Sensory experience that occurs when the eyes see an object, or when the ears hear a sound, when the nose smells a smell, the tongue tastes a taste, the body feels a touch, or the mind knows a mental object. When The internal sense bases, or six sense organs, make contact with a corresponding external sense object. There comes about contact. Contact involves both the physical interrelationship between sense organ, which is internal, and sense objects, which are external. This happens physically, and then there is a bit of mental awareness which we call sense consciousness. These three coming together, the sense organ, sense object, and sense consciousness, based on either the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, or mind. These three coming together is called contact or patsa. And a simple way of thinking of this contact between these three things is as sense experience. This is what all our experience of life is made up of. This is what is taking place in the process of action and reaction. Contact becomes a problem when we are unable to control it, to manage it in a wise way. Because we are ignorant, because we don't understand how this works in reality, because we lack correct knowledge of this working of the mind, then the contact is out of control. When contact is out of control, it conditions, it concocts, it brews up what we call feeling pleasant feelings towards some contacts, unpleasant feelings towards others, and an uncertain feeling where the mind doesn't know whether to be pleased or displeased. This is the third kind of feeling that can be conditioned or brewed up, cooked up by out-of-control contact. And Then when we have these feelings, these lead to craving. Craving to get more of those pleasant feelings, craving to get rid of, to destroy those unpleasant feelings, and a craving to, to get out of the uncertainty, which leads to some kind of snappy, foolish judgment about the feeling. And then this leads to selfishness. And the problems of tukka. So, this is how tukka arises according to the law of nature. This is a second aspect on that arising of tukka, mental suffering. A third angle on this problem of tukka, suffering, is that of being unable to control egoism or egoistic concepts, self-centered thinking. Because these things cannot be controlled, there arises this problem of mental anguish, suffering, despair and pain. To control this is a quite is quite a difficult thing to do because this egoism is something that has been with us from the very beginning of life. Egoism is an instinctual way of perceiving our lives, not just in human beings, but in other living creatures as well. And so egoism can be quite difficult to control because it's been here all along. We think that it is necessary and inherent, and we don't really understand it at all. Egoism leads to selfishness. When we start to think in self-centered egoistic ways, Then there arises selfish behavior, selfish acts, selfish words, and selfish thoughts. And this leads to what we call the defilements. And following upon the defilements, there is a great deal of pain and suffering. The defilements of anger, greed, fear, worry, envy, etc. disturb our minds to no end as well as causing all kinds of problems for other people and the environment around us. The Dhamma is very much concerned with, is based in the methods and understanding necessary in order to control this, this egoism and the selfishness that arises from it. This is what the Dhamma is about. So this is why we need to be very interested in it. By understanding the Dhamma, we begin to understand how egoism leads to selfishness and that in turn brews up all kinds of pain, suffering and tukkha. By using the Dhamma and understanding it more and more, this problem of egoism, getting out of control, can be diminished, limited, and one day eliminated. And then life, both the the part of it that is personal and individual, and then the part of it that is related and involves other beings, this life becomes free of the problem of dukkha by being able to bring this thing called egoism under control. So This is a third way of looking upon the problem of dukkha as is explained by the law of nature. We've just looked at how Tuka arises under the law of nature. Now we'd like to look at this the opposite side of the picture, which is the extinction of Tuka. Tuka is like a fire burning the mind. And so we're also, we need to be very interested in the putting out of that fire the extinguishing of the fire of tukkha. And so we will look at the extinction of tukkha, suffering, pain, mental anguish. We mentioned how that the instincts, if they get out of control, develop into the defilements. This is one direction which the instincts can develop in. However, it is not the only one. If there is knowledge and understanding that is correct, then these basic neutral instincts that are are a part of all life, these basic instincts can be developed in a different direction. With knowledge, these instincts can be developed in the way of Hoti, or bodhi, which we can call enlightenment. Rather than, through ignorance, allowing the instincts to develop into defilements, we, through knowledge, develop the instincts into enlightenment. Taking these instincts and working with them, developing them, and so that they work and function on a higher and higher level. This leads to enlightenment. This is the opposite of defilement. And as enlightenment develops, it brings about the extinction of tukha. The defilements lead to tukha, to all sorts of pain and problems, both personal and for those around us. But enlightenment brings about the extinction of tukha. Through enlightenment the mind in life are freed from defilement. And then there is the coolness of when tuka is extinguished. <clears throat> this also depends upon the law of nature, the law of cause and effect. Now that we've talked about the extinction of tukha, Let's go back and consider the word duty again, the duty in accordance with the law of nature. When there is the possibility of the extinction of tukha, which is dependent upon the law of nature, then there arises the duty of life, Here we are, we've been born on this planet. And so we need to look at the importance of the value of this thing we call the duty of life. A Thai way of phrasing this is to ask what is it to talk about this duty or its value, is that how is it? that we don't waste this birth how is it to not waste this life or how do we protect the investment of this life so that we don't so that it, it doesn't become a loss a waste of time a waste of a life this is a Thai way of phrasing this even though I've sort of messed it up with my translation. so What is, this is the value of the duty of life. We've been born. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do with this life so that it is, is not wasted, frittered away, and blown on silly and useless things? So we need to look at, what is this duty? where does it come from where does it head the duty centres upon this problem of tuka what is tuka it is our duty to find out where does tuka come from how does it happen what is the end of tuka what brings about the extinction of mental anguish, pain, and suffering. And what is the way that this happens? This is our duty to discover these things. If we don't show an interest in this duty, we will be merely sentient beings. We'll be bodies with some mental processes walking around, but never developing to a very high or exalted level. So we'll, without interest in the duty of life, then there is no development beyond being a sentient being. But if this duty is studied, practiced, and perfected, then there comes the realization which we can call the perfection of life, to be a perfected human being. This comes about through the performance of this duty, through the development of life in the way of enlightenment. This is the value and importance of the duty of life, the duty in accordance with the law of nature. If it is practiced fully, it leads to human perfection. Now let's look at life, or more specifically, the value of life. We look to see what value and meaning life has. We can see, see this in basically two ways. The first value of life is individual. It involves our own survival, but not just merely surviving in a way that is full of disease, illness, pain, and suffering, or heat, but survival that is cool, surviving in genuine tranquility and peace. This is the value of life for each of us, to develop life according to the law of nature, so that there is survival in the highest sense. Not a petty low level of survival that where the body survives but the mind is pestered by the defilement, but a high level of survival that achieves human perfection. This is one side of the value of life. There is another aspect to it as well, and this is the value of life for the benefit of others living and doing things to help and aid other beings. The law of nature has stipulated that we live on this planet in large numbers. It hasn't developed that each of us is alone, one of us per planet, but rather there are a great number of us sharing this earth. This is the way the law of nature has stipulated things. And so it's this way. Now, there being many of us on this planet requires that we live and work together. There will be many interrelationships and social contacts. Our duty on this social level or community level is to live correctly in a way that causes no harm. To other beings. This means to live in a way that is based in correctness. When we find ourselves living together in these large numbers, we need to live for the benefit of each other rather than for our own selfish interest. If we all took correctness, living rightly as our common interest then there would be no problem. If we would just do what was correct, this world would not be in all the problems that it finds itself in. For example, there would be no need for birth control if we were living correctly. According to the law of nature, birth control is not a proper thing. But nowadays, because we are living so selfishly and so incorrectly. Many problems have been created, and an attempt to deal with those problems is birth control. This has arisen because we aren't, haven't been living correctly. But if we can root ourselves in correctness and take this as the common interest, do what is beneficial for each other help each other in sharing and in benefit, then this common interest can lead to true coolness on a social level as well, where not only is there internal peace and tranquility, but there is outer, external, social peace and tranquility. And then there is a very complete cool and tranquil life in which there is coolness both inside and out, when there is true survival both on the personal level and on the social or species level. These are two aspects to the value of life. Life lives according to the duty that follows from the law of nature which brings about personal survival on the highest level, and doing the outer duty of living correctly, so as to benefit all other beings. This is the second value of life. The duty of life, in accordance with the law of nature, when performed correctly, will will cause a God to appear that can genuinely help us. In Buddhism, remember, we were talking about an impersonal God. But when when we do our duty as human beings, then this God, this impersonal God, the law of nature, can truly help us. If we refuse to do our duty, if we're unwilling to learn what the duty is and follow it, then there's no way that any god can help us. If we continue to be ignorant or foolish, unwilling to learn what this duty is, and merely following our our old habits and patterns. Then we'll continually get ourselves into the problem of Tuka, and there's nothing about this that any god can do. A god can't help us if we're not interested in doing our duty. A flock of gods or herd of them could still not help you as long as there is no doing of the human duty. But as soon as we begin to do this duty, then God, the law of cause and effect, can begin to help us. Through performing this duty, the law of cause and effect is on our side, and then becomes our savior. This law of cause and effect can save us if we do the duty of life. And that this law of nature, this impersonal God, will then save us from sukkha, from mental pain and suffering, and bring about survival on the highest level. So this is how doing our duty in accordance with the law of nature gives rise to a God who can truly save us. In the world there are a great many different religions but they can all be summarized within two categories. The first category are religions that hold that there is a creator, some sort of god that creates, and often there is a god who also preserves and destroys. This is one type of religion based in the concept of, or belief in, a creating God. The second type of religion is one that does not believe in such a God, but rather believes in evolution, the process of development through varying changes in which there is no personal God involved. There are these two kinds of religions, creationist and evolutionist, as we have mentioned. In coming here to Mok, you are now studying the second kind of religion, a religion that is evolutionist, a religion that is based in the law of nature or the law of evolution that there is an evolutionary development that follows natural patterns of cause and effect, this process of action and reaction. This meaning of Dhamma, this law of nature, is the impersonal god of an evolutionary religion. There is both this evolutionary god, the law of cause and effect. Then there is the nature that follows from that law. And this we can call the savior. The savior in Buddhism is duty, doing the duty of human beings according to that law of cause and effect. If this duty is performed, then the highest fruit will be realized by human beings who perform that duty. And so if we look at Buddhism in this way, we see that within the word Dhamma there is the meaning of both the the God that creates, this law of nature creates everything that exists. And then there is the meaning of a savior, the duty that saves us, from dukkha that brings about our emancipation and liberation. In creationist religions, there is frequent talk about the creator God and the Savior God. And now we can see that in evolutionist religions there is also these aspects of God, or we could say the law of nature and the duty according to the law of nature. If we look at it in this way, then there is no need for conflict between the different religions. There is plenty of room for harmony and understanding, where we can communicate with each other in regard to the Creator God, whether personal or an impersonal law of nature, and the Savior, whether seen as some avatar or incarnation or as the, na- the duty according to the law of nature. So it is possible that all religions of whatever kind can come together and share this mu- mutual understanding, so that each of us can develop fully towards human perfection. as the duty, as this savior, the duty according to the law of nature, is fulfilled more and more, then life becomes more and more liberated from all pain and suffering and develops in the way of enlightenment. This is the meaning of dhamma that we all need to be very interested in. If you take great interest in this duty that we have been talking about, then you will not have to come to us for the answer to the question, why Dhamma? If you understand the law of nature, then you'll know the answer to the question, why Dhamma? You know that answer within yourself. So please be very interested in this this thing which we call the duty In accordance with the law of nature. In knowing this, the purpose of life, the reason we're here, the value of life will become very clear. Dhamma, why Dhamma? We hope that you come to understand this more and more in the days ahead. If you do, Then you will experience the immediate benefits of that knowledge. The knowledge of knowing Dhamma, of knowing the law of nature, and of knowing the duty according to the law of nature brings immediate results. It is not necessary to wait until after the, after death to go to some heaven or paradise. By knowing this duty, it is possible to realize the highest possible thing for a human being here and now in this life. So there is nothing to wait, ab- to wait about in this matter of our duty. It is something to be done here and now in order to realize its benefits and value here and now. So please be very interested in this thing and you will understand why Dhamma. And on this point we will end today's talk. Thank you.